Praise God, you guys. We have an awesome God to be absolutely sure. Uh, an amazing God. And I want to do it. A message. Uh, it's funny, John didn't know I was preaching on him. He's saying, sometimes we hear hard things, you know. I said, well, it's going to sound like we compared notes because there's some hard things we have to recognize as believers, amen, and we, got, we have to deal with. And every once in a while, I'll do a message on repentance. And I do that, and I don't give the same message over and over again. I rarely ever, I mean, very, very rarely do I even consult my old messages, you know. I consult a lot of old messages that I never finished, <laughs> you know, and that's very helpful because those are things I'm working toward. Uh, once in a while, I'll consult a message, but I won't preach the same message again. I might get some help, uh, some insights that I had before. But I could make it easy and just go back to those messages, but I want things to be fresh. So I just cry out to the Lord, what's your heart, Lord? What's a word for the fellowship today from your word? And, uh, and I want to do a message on repentance, and it'll be unlike some of the other messages I've done on repentance. And repentance is a word that you don't hear very often in the church today. Uh, it's because a lot of times it's just dropped from Christian vocabulary as though it's not necessary Although Jesus made it clear, unless you repent, you will all likewise what? Perish. Perish. Okay, you guys know your Bibles, so it's sound like a chorus. You know, and he said that twice, so we should know that verse. He said it in Luke 13, 3, and then Luke 13, 5. Uh, he said it to people who felt that they were already right with God, fellow Jews. Uh, many of the Pharisees and the scribes, they were considered the most righteous people on earth. And Jesus said, you know, Something really amazing in those, along those lines. In fact, the Jews, they had a saying, if only two people make it to heaven, one will be a Jew, one will be a scribe. Yet Jesus said to his disciples, unless your righteousness exceeds or transcends the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Think about how shocking that must have been, amen? And thank God for the cross, amen? Because he is our righteousness, as some of you are already shaking your boots, uh-oh. You know, uh, he is our righteousness, but it has to be genuine faith. And when you put your genuine faith in Messiah and you're truly following him and you're energized by his Holy Spirit, you have someone in you that they didn't have. So you're easy, it's easier for you to do acts of righteousness inspired by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit that exceed that which is done in the flesh, which is where Paul was before he was a Christian, remember? Things I didn't want to do, I did. Things I didn't, did want to do, I didn't. That was the life of the scribe and Pharisee without Jesus. We're able to actually walk in righteousness. However, if we leave repentance out and the message of the gospel becomes have mental assent and just agree that Jesus died for you, but go on your merry way, continue to go down that broad road to destruction, then the end is hell. So a lot of churches don't even teach repentance anymore. A lot of theologians even, uh, many associated with the free grace movement in the past, not all of them, but... Uh, some, I won't get into the names and everything because I want to get into the text, but just, you know, repentance is, you know, they just dumb it down to where there's not a real, doesn't really lead to a true change of life and remorse about your sin and a conviction that I need to turn from my sin, which results in uh, the fruit of repentance, which is a change of life. Uh, that's, but it's not even just the, the dumbing down of certain theological constructs in the church. It's just the way a lot of pastors tend to share because you don't want to offend people because you want your church to grow and you want people to come 
and tithe or whatever your motives are, and you don't want to ruffle feathers, you don't want to hurt feelings, you, maybe you're counseling people and somebody's fallen into adultery or something and you don't want to, oh, that, that person's going to feel bad if I'm talking about adultery or that person's going to be bad if I talk about this sin or that sin. And what happens is pastors shy away from these things. And what happens is a lot of people continue to practice these things and they don't turn from them. And the physical amount of people at your church might grow, but there's leaven that leavens the whole church and you're actually keeping people from heaven by not preaching repentance. And I've told you before, we're saved by grace through faith that not of ourselves is a gift of God, not of works as anyone should boast. We're saved by faith. But true faith is repentant faith. You can't have genuine faith. The Bible says faith without works is dead. Now works are not repentance. Works are the fruit of repentance just as they're the fruit of genuine faith. Amen? So repentance that doesn't have faith is not real repentance. See, if someone says, oh, I have a change of heart about my sin, but you're not turning to the Lord for forgiveness, that's not biblical repentance. And faith that doesn't turn in one's heart from rebelling against God, but just has mental sin, I believe Jesus died for me, but it's still in rebellion to him, that's not biblical faith either. Repentant faith is, and you'll hear me use that term repentant faith at times, because that's what real faith is. It's a faith that turns to the Lord. In fact, that Greek word translated faith, pastuo, or pistis is a noun, uh, then the verb uh, pastuo, those uh, often are used in, in ancient writings, and we're not really doing a study on faith. When we do that, we'll probably get into some of the Greek on that again, uh, because I've just, it's amazing when you see that word. It was used of like just surrender, you know, surrendering to someone else at times in the religious context of the first century, which is very interesting. Now, when we talk about repentance, this, the name of this message is the anatomy of Christian repentance. So this is not a message as much, although it apply a lot to the world and those that don't know Christ, many of these principles I'm talking to you about, but I'm talking about Christians repenting, not how the world needs to repent to become Christians. We've talked about that several times, but how the church needs to repent often. And in Revelation chapter two, which I'd like you to go to Revelation chapter two, uh, we'll start off there. In Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3, we have the letters to the seven churches, right? Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Laodicea and Philadelphia. And what's interesting in those seven letters to the seven churches that Jesus sends, eight times the church is called to repent. That word repent is used. To the church. And what's taught today is either you don't have to repent, which is a lie, or repentance happens when you first become a Christian. But after you become a Christian, it's lost in the vocabulary often of the church, which is so dangerous because it's used in the vocabulary of Jesus regarding the church in the letters and also the other letters uh, that we read as well in some of the epistles and so forth. We find this word repentance. Repentance ought to be part of your Christian life. You need to take stock of your life and say, am I a repentant Christian? And that's very, very critical. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 5, the author of Hebrews is heartbroken because he wants to talk about Melchizedek more than he does. Because he wants to talk about how Melchizedek is this incredible Old Testament picture foreshadowing Christ. But he says, I can't because... You guys are dull of hearing because you're still on milk. 
you should be eating meat now, but you ought to be teaching others right now, but you're still in need, need of milk. Then he goes on to talk about how, you know, let's not return to laying a foundation of the ABCs of the faith, the principle or the foundational teachings of repentance, of repentance from dead works. You know, repentance from dead works. Turning the heart from sin and faith toward God. Let's not, he says, you guys should have got that by now. We shouldn't have to go over that again. And he's frustrated a little bit. That this is a doctrine that needs not and better not be ignored in the church. And then he goes on to give one of the strongest warnings in all of Scripture in verses 4 through 8. One of the strongest warnings of all of Scripture. Some believe the strongest warning against apostasy and falling away from the faith. Right after that. That's serious stuff. Now, we need to make sure we understand. I mean, the Apostle Paul preached repentance. In Acts 17.30, he said, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, this is on Mars Hill in Athens, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men uh, that all people everywhere should repent. That's pretty inclusive, right? That all men everywhere ought to repent. So I want to talk to you about the 10 R's of repentance, okay? 10 R's, you're like, wow, this is going to be a long one, man. <laughs> no, we'll get done on time, Lord willing. Lord's always willing, uh, whatever his will is. He's not always, his time is not always our time. And as we know, when Jesus showed up four days late for Lazarus' funeral, right? So we can't say it's his will that we get on exactly done at this particular minute. But uh, we'll get done at a relatively good time, uh, hopefully a, a good normal time. But because guess what? I don't have 20 pages of notes, guys. I only have like seven pages of notes. Woo, so we should get done in time even with 10 R's. I don't know if anybody has ever preached 10 R's of repentance. but And when I talk about these 10 R's of repentance, these are 10 R's. Not all of these are the anatomy of repentance, but they're associated with repentance. My point is, is that I might be focused on one thing, which is the fruit of repentance. But not actually, repentance actually is something that takes place before the fruit actually comes forth. So sometimes people confuse. John, John the Baptist said to the Pharisees who were there watching his baptism, and all the people were going out to be baptized by John the Baptist, right? Turning from their sins. And, and he said, who warned you guys to flee from the wrath to come? You, you call them snakes and stuff, and, or, you know, from the wrath of God and so forth. And he, and he says to them, I mean, just very clearly, you know, bring forth fruit in keeping with Repentance. So a lot of times people confuse the fruit of repentance with actual repentance. The fruit is different than the root and the tree, right? So we talk about repentance. We're not saying you have to do a bunch of good things and God will accept you. What we're saying is repentance in the Greek, the Greek word is metanoia, which means to have a change of heart, a change of mind, okay? So... When you have a change of heart or a change of mind about something, the fruit of that is evident in your activity later, right? So if I'm truly repentant in my heart and I have a change of heart, a change of mind about whether I want to follow Jesus or not and put my trust in him, the, the minute I put my trust in him, I'm saved. But if I'm truly repentant, there'll be fruit from that. We'll explore that a little bit because we've talked about that in some depth before, so I won't spend too much on time on, in that, but uh, that'll be one of the points we cross over. But in Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, it's quite interesting because this is to 
the church at Ephesus, the first of the seven churches that Jesus addresses. And in chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church at Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And by the way, uh, we're doing a, two came up to me yesterday at my mother-in-law's memorial and uh, sister too. And she came up and she said, she's laughing behind Jim over there. And she goes, I've got a bet against you. And I'm like, oh, what's that, you know? And she's like, I'm betting that you can't, I'm almost trying to talk like two, it sounds like, but I'm betting that you can't, you know, uh, get this done in an hour because we're going through the book of Revelation uh, live, right? Would that be live or that be the, oh, that'll, it'll be re-aired though. But we'll be uh, doing Revelation, all 22 chapters in an hour, okay? Uh, you can't read that in an hour, I don't think, you know, not at a decent pace. And she's like, and I'm like, that's a good bet. You know me pretty good, you know? I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet up against you on that, you know, but I'm, I'm glad you're saying that. It's going to give me more motivation to get it done in an hour. But uh, that means I've only got, what, two, just over two minutes a chapter, which I feel terrible. There's so much meat on the bone, especially Revelation, especially when you take years to finish it, right? We've been through it two different times in this fellowship, and we still got to finish the end of uh, 20 and then do 21 and 22, uh, which I almost did the end of 19 today, but I'm praying about that. I want to put some of the some of the scriptures up on slides there because I want to show you some of the Greek to understand a certain concept that's important there. But uh, we will be doing that and uh, you might want to catch that because Chad says a lot of people in our live stream audience and that are part of our Facebook group and stuff that are really excited about that. So we're hitting it a chapter at a time, you know. I already had a plan though too. I didn't tell you about this. I said, Chad, bring a little timer. So you turn that little thing over and I know each time, man, I got to I got to move on. So you could still bet against me. It's probably still a wise bet, though. <laughs> uh, chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church at Ephesus, right? The one who holds. We read that because, and he's identified as the one who walks in the midst of the candlesticks of the lampstands in chapter 1. Verse 2. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance. He knows you guys. He knows me. He knows all of us. I know your deeds. I know your toil. I know your perseverance or, and your perseverance. And that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you have found them to be false, or as King James says, you have found them to be liars. Okay, so they're testing false apostles. They found that they were liars. They did not tolerate evil men. So they have some spiritual conviction. They're even testing doctrine, but they have a severe problem. And he, they have this, though, verse 3, and you have perseverance, and have endured for my namesake, and have not grown weary. So on one hand, they've endured for his name's sake, for the name of Jesus. They're like, let's go forward. They've shown perseverance. They're still in fellowship. They're not forsaking the fellowship in themselves together. Things like that. Verse 4, but I have this against you. And it's not just a little thing. It's a serious thing. That you have left your what? First love. They left their first love. The first R is return to your first love. And that's why this message is the anatomy of Christian repentance. The anatomy of Christian repentance. I, I, I typed in, because I love the uh, title, the anatomy of repentance. And I typed that in to see if anybody had used that title before. And I found one other person, maybe there's more, one other person on the internet anyways that used that as a title. And I thought, oh, bummer. Not that you can't use, people use the same titles over and over and over again. But... Uh, 
thought, oh, I'll maybe I'll have the anatomy of biblical repentance, you know. But as I was finishing up my message, I was like, you know what? This is really about Christian repentance. So I'd call this the anatomy of Christian repentance because you don't tell non-believers when you tell them to repent and put their trust in Jesus, you don't tell them to return to their first love. Amen? They were never in love with Jesus in the first place. They need, to, they need to fall in love with the Lord. Amen? And when you first became a Christian, you fell in love with the Lord. You were grateful that he died for your sins, that he loves you. Amen? And you, pr- you praise him. But you know what? You could get away from that. You could start going through the motions. You could be on this like treadmill and you could start, you know, you fell in love with him. So what did you do? You fell in love with his people, the body of Christ. Because you started loving what he loved. So you were in fellowship. You were, you were praising him. You were worshiping him. You were seeking him. You were praying. Well, guess what? If other things garner your attention, and this happens to perhaps millions of people through the ages, the thorns and thistles come into your life that squeeze out the word of God. You start getting your attention on something else. You can still end up going to church, but your focus is not the Lord. You're not like, I want to grow in the Lord. I want to seek him. I want to, and you're not praising him. You're not, you're not praying and seeking his face and uh, in his word and excited about sharing him. And he says, return to your first love. When you first fall in love with a person, oftentimes you want to spend time with them, typically. If you don't, you're really not in love with them, right? Uh, you, want to, you end up sharing them with other people. Hey, you know, I got this, this girlfriend I'm really crazy about. Or you might even show a picture or whatever, but you share and, but you can know you've departed from your first love if there's, you've lose that excitement. And it's sinful. It's sinful if I forget or I'm no longer excited about the one who saved me from hell. The one who made me in his image. The one that became a man and took my punishment upon himself because he loved me so much. If I'm not excited about him or I don't want to spend time with him, but I still go to church and I still know certain things are wrong, Oh, yeah, man, what they're doing up there in Reading, you know, doing that wizard stuff, you know, claiming that that's Christianity, you know, spells to get rid of this sin or whatever. That's, I know that's wrong. But at the same time, you know, you have a potty mouth. You're not concerned about the inner person and, 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 and who the Lord is and fearing him and loving him. You can't just know the right things, man. You have to truly love the Lord. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 16, cursed is everyone who does not love the Lord. No, not cursed is everybody outside the church building that doesn't love the Lord. Cursed is everyone who doesn't love the Lord. That's a heavy verse. And we can't just go through the motions, man. We should have a love for the Lord that wants us to be with him. That where we want to be with him, where we want to pray. We want to give thanks. We want to give praises. Amen. And that's how we take our spiritual temperature. You don't just say, hey, is my doctrine right? That's important. First Timothy 4.1, the Spirit speaks expressly that latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. And a few verses later, verse 16, he says, watch your life and your doctrine, and in so doing, you'll save yourself and those who hear you. So doctrine is incredibly important. It's important to dot your, spiritual, your, your theological eyes and, your, your, your theological, uh, and cross your theological teeth. That's important. We talk about that a lot. But guess what? It's not either or. You can't just, the, the demons know the truth. You know that, right? And they even believe and tremble. But they're not saved. We have to know the Lord and make sure we're seeking him. So you can, contrary to some of our Calvinistic friends and brothers, we can leave our first love, you know. 
You can't commit apostasy. You can fall out of love with Jesus because we have this thing called free will where we have choices. And we have to examine our hearts and say, what's my spiritual temperature? Because to one of the other churches in Church of Laodicea, the next chapter over, he says, you know, I would that you're hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Here he says they had left their first love. So we need to return to our first love. It's important. What was it like when you first came to Jesus? We talked about it. You were probably praying. I mean, your, 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 your Christian walk begins with the prayer, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, right? When you put your trust in Jesus, you're saved and you call upon him, we'll be saved. You had a prayer life. It don't, no matter how meager it was, there was a prayer life. You had a love for the Lord. If you are saved, you definitely had a love for the Lord. You know how I know that? Because Galatians chapter 5, verse 6 says, faith works through love. You're not looking to him, well, I believe you died for me, but that's okay. I guess I'll trust you. No, you're like, thank you, Jesus. I love you. I, thank, I love, what, love who you are and what you've done for me. Amen. And returning your first love means you, you have a prayer life. You return to seeking him. And you praise him. Because when you were first saved, you were thankful to him. Amen. And you gave thanks. And you, and you sang songs with, of thanksgiving. If you find yourself no longer excited and singing to him and worshiping him, return. Say, God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. I've sinned, you know. Uh, you probably shared him, or at least you wanted to share him when you were first saved, right? You need to have that desire again. And then God help you to actually do it. Share him with others and what he's done for you. And the closer you get to him, the more you seek him, the more you want to do that. You know, and it's, it's not him that's moved. It's like the guy, you know, he's, in, he's middle-aged. He's with his, the the you know, bride of his youth, and they're driving down the road in the old pickup truck, you know, the ones with the bench seats back in those days, you know, and she's at the, he's at one door, and she's at the other door, she's got her arms folded, and she's looking at him, and she's like, I remember when we used to, and we're driving along, I remember when we used to cuddle when we drove, he looks at her, he's like, yeah, who moved? You know, right? It wasn't him that moved. It was her that moved, you know? I mean, she could blame deodorant or lack thereof or something like that. But guess what? You can't do anything like that with Jesus. He's perfect. And if someone's moved, it's us that move. Amen? So we need to make sure that we pursue him. So number one, the first R is return to your first love. Number two, well, back to the text. Back to the text. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. So number one, return your first love. Therefore what? What's, the next, what's verse five say? Therefore what? What do you think the second R is? Remember. Remember. Remember, he says this, from where you have fallen. The King James, from whence you have fallen. Remember from where you've fallen, where you were before. So it starts with going back and thinking, where was I at when I was first in love with Jesus? What was my walk like when I was really seeking him, when I first really devoted my life to him? It's important to do that. Because if we don't remember, we don't know what that looks like. If you return to your first love, you want to remember what that looks like. Amen? And, 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 and of course, if it's genuine faith, it's going to be based on Scripture. So you remember the very things we talked about. Praise, 
prayer, excitement, witnessing, sharing, reading the word, you know. You get a girlfriend and she's overseas or she's left the state or you've left the state. You exchange letters, man. You really look at that letter. And you're just trying to find out exactly what she's saying or what he's saying if you're a gal. What's he saying to me, you know? Well, we read the word. This is his love letter to us, amen? And we remember, man, I was in the word. I love the word of God. And a lot of it, and for me, it's, you know, I'm constantly crying out to love the Lord more. That's my constant prayer. Lord, help me love you more. Because you call me love you with my whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. And I hate that I fall short like everybody else. And I'm like, Lord, help me love you more. And he, that's a prayer he'll answer. Amen? Because he loves us. And we're his children. How many of you would want to know your little children want to love you more? Right? Well, it blesses his heart. So pray about it. Say, Lord, help me love you more. Help me bless you more. Help me worship you more. So remembering is such a key. And I wish I could focus on every one of these for quite a while, but we have to get to 10 of them, right? So number three, look what he says in verse five. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and what? What's the third R's right there? Repent. Now we're doing the anatomy of repentance. So obviously repentance is part of it because we're describing it. But that word repent, almost every time you see the word repent in your Greek New Testament or your English New Testament, which is translated from the Greek, it's from the Greek word metanoia, which means to have, as I mentioned earlier, a change of heart or a change of mind that leads to a change of direction, a change of lifestyle. That's a great definition of repentance. Biblical repentance. Metanoia used in the New Testament context is a change of heart and change of mind that leads to a change of life. The, rep- the change of life is not the repentance as much as really what the repentance is that change of heart, change of mind. And we're going to be talking about what that looks like. And the fruit from that, the activity that comes from that is the fruit of it. Again, you don't confuse the fruit with the root. Metanoia is the change of heart, change of mind. The fruit is the activity. Because you have to be careful with this. Like when you're witnessing to a non-believer. Sometimes people leave repentance out, often they do all together. And there's a lot of people walking around thinking they're saved. They're not, they never stepped in church, but they said they prayed, they prayed the sinner's prayer, you know. I mean, I showed a guy named Steven Anderson, who's a popular YouTube preacher. When I was up in Texas visiting our Texas home, you guys are awesome. Praise the Lord for you guys. Uh, our Texas fellowship over there. And I shared where he's going door to door, and he's telling people, you know, he's, he, he shows them, we show, we play like five-minute deal where he's saying, you want to pray the sinner's prayer. And accept Jesus. And he says, all I have to do is pray. And then he tells him, and guess what? He goes, you don't have to go to church. You know, you don't have to change your life. He goes, you can kill 100 people or you can kill a bunch of people. I forget how he puts it. But you're, and you're still saved. Don't worry about it, you know. I'm like, so there's a lot of people walking around who don't have that. But the other extreme is telling somebody, before you can be accepted by God, you have to repent. And that means you have to be perfect. Stop everything absolutely 100% and then God will accept you. That's not repentance either. Stopping, stop sinning on the way to perfection. You won't be perfect till Jesus comes. Is the fruit of repentance. But the repentance happens in the heart. It's not a work you do. It's an attitude of, yes, Lord, I'm a sinner. God gives grace to the what? Humble, but he resists the proud. You humble yourself. Jesus says, unless you humble yourself, become like one of these little children, 
who didn't have any rights in biblical times, in those you recognize the master, you won't inherit the kingdom of God if you don't do that. So we humble ourselves and we say, I can't save myself. Save me, Lord. But we have a change of heart where he becomes our Lord and Savior, amen? And that leads to a life where we're following him, amen? But we don't get saved after we clean ourselves up enough. We get saved because we come to him in faith saying, be my Savior. I believe you died for me. And then you fall in love with him, right? And guess what? If you love me, Jesus said, you keep my commandments. So then the obedience is a result of that, that conversion, So we need to have metanoia. We need to have repentance. And number four, a a very, very important part of repentance is recognizing or recognition that you have sinned against the thrice holy God. Recognizing your sin against God. If you don't recognize your sin, you can't repent. You can't be sorrowful for it, amen? You can't, you can't call it what it is. And if you don't understand the sinfulness of sin, at least to a degree, you don't have that repentant heart that turns from it. But you need to recognize sin isn't sin because it's just wrong. Sin is sin because it is an affront, an unholy affront against the thrice holy God where you're actually sinning against him. You're breaking his moral law that he has written in your heart, that is codified in his word, that you as a Christian, without Christian repentance, you're breaking the law of Christ, the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles and the New Testament prophets. We're not under the law of Moses, but we are, the moral law of Moses is still there. We don't have to be circumcised and and, uh, you know, do animal sacrifices and all those things be right with God. Paul wrote a whole letter about that in Galatians. But guess what? The moral law of God that doesn't change, that's codified in the Old Testament, has been brought over to the New Testament as it's called the law of Christ. And then it's even exceeded because Jesus says, love one another as I've loved you. Give you a new commandment, right? It's even more radical. Calls us to even a higher calling. And guess what? We recognize that we break his moral law. We repent. Part of repentance is recognizing that you just didn't slip up, but you have sinned against our holy God. You've broken his heart. You've flung an arrow into his heart. That's what sin does. It it breaks his moral law, grieves the Holy Spirit. The Bible says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you've been sealed into the day of redemption. Ephesians 4.30. So 1 John 1.8 says, he that says he's without sin is a what? He's a liar and the truth is not in him. Amen. Then the very next verse says this though. If we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Thank thank you, Lord. Amen. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the Bible, the word confess is important. The word confess is a very interesting word. And it's homo legeo. Homo in Greek means the same. Like homosexual is one that has sex with the same gender, okay? Which is forbidden in the scripture. So the word homo in itself isn't speaking of homosexual. It just means homo means the same. Homo legeo is the Greek word for confess. Legeo, there's a couple different words for the, the, the word of God. Rhema is the word of God. Sometimes it deals with the spoken word, but not always. And the other one is logos. Jesus is the logos of God. Lagos, message of God. Lagos is, means word as well. 
means to speak. Legeo means to speak, to speak words. So we talk about how uh, uh, the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God or word of Christ. King James has word of God, okay? Uh, NASB, word of Christ. Christ is probably from the better manuscripts there. But guess what? Homo legeo means to the same. Legeo, speak, say. Homo legeo, the word for, for confess, means to say the same thing. Say the same thing as who? It's God. So we confess our sins. We're saying, hey, this is sin. You've defined this as sin, and it's sin. I'm saying the same thing you were saying, that this is wrong, and I'm turning from it. Do you understand that? Very, very simple. Confess means to say the same thing about your sin that God says. But we don't go to the, the, the Bible and look at it as a smorgasbord where we just pick and choose. Oh, I agree with that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Mm, this thing about not being angry with my brother because it's murder, I disagree with Jesus on that. I've got a good reason to be ticked off with that guy. That's not what we do with God's word, guys. Amen? We have to say, no. This is what his word says. I should be angry with my brother. Man, I deserve wrath. And the Bible says, forgive one another as I've forgiven you in Christ Jesus. I was dealing with one of my grandchildren yesterday. Had him in my lap and he was struggling with one of his friends, you know. And we had a little talk about forgiveness and mercy. Whether you're right or wrong in this, you just need to have a merciful heart. And he was wrong in it. At least partially wrong in it, you know. And, I, and we talked about the importance of of, of forgiveness and mercy. But a lot of Christians, they'll say, yeah, of course, I won't commit adultery, but they'll hate on people, wishing bad things on other people and calling themselves Christians. That's not being a Christian. That's not following Jesus. There needs to be repentance. And when you're close to your first love, you have a heart of love toward others. You might struggle, but you'll say, God, have, help me to be merciful. You'll constantly be checking yourself. You'll constantly be confessing. So part of returning to your first love and abiding your first love is not approaching God's word as a smorgasbord, but as Paul said, following the whole counsel of God. Amen? So it's important that we recognize that we've sinned against God. Guess what? When David sinned and he fell into adultery with Bathsheba, and he even sent Uriah to the front lines because he's the king to be killed, to cover up the, for himself. When he came to repentance, listen to what he said in Psalm 51, verse 3 and 4. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. That's why you don't want to, you want to avoid sin, guys. It just destroys your, your heart. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, against you, Lord, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Wow, that's Psalm 51, 3 and 4. Lord, against you, my sins ever before me, against you, and you only have I sinned, and I've done what is evil in your sight. Now, some don't, mis don't misunderstand that. Oh, that means I've only sinned against God, and I didn't really hurt anybody else. Wrong. It's not what he's saying there. He's, it's God's moral law that he broke. We're, we're not the origin of the moral law. God is, amen? So it's his moral law. It's your moral law that I broke. And you only, it's only your moral law that I broke. It doesn't mean you don't hurt people, that there doesn't need to be love and forgiveness and things don't need to be repaired. Oh, well, I didn't really sin against that person. No, the Bible uses language of sinning against other people too throughout the scripture. But it's used in this context of you're the one that originated the moral law. But you can sin, meaning harm. You can miss the mark of what God's called you to and hurt other people. So it's important that we recognize 
we recognize that we've sinned against God. Amen? That's, what, that's part of the anatomy of true repentance. That you didn't just blow it. You didn't just make a mistake. Right? Sin is not just a mistake. A mistake, as we say, is when you put, the pizza guy puts anchovies on your pizza and, and forgets the pepperonis and you didn't ask for anchovies. You asked for pepperoni pizza. That's a mistake. Okay? Uh, unless you're like Tom, saying you love anchovies back there. Which I can relate to a degree. Uh, you know what? That's a mistake. A mistake is when you miss in horseshoes. Sin is when you break a moral law that God has set up that, that hurts others or breaks God's heart. So that's important. Number five. Number five. We need to have remorse over our sin. Remorse over our sin. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Remorse over our sin. How many of you like it when I do messages on repentance and we go through scriptures like this? Only a few hands? Okay. No, praise the Lord. Amen. Tough if you don't. It's the word of God. Amen. We need to talk about these things. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul is dealing with the church. He's dealing with the church's need to repent. The church had not fully repented at Corinth. There was a man in that church who was having sexual relations with his stepmom. Remember that? And Paul's saying, this, you don't even see this in the world around them. How could you let this happen to the church as though, and they, they were libertines to a degree. They were thinking they could just get away with sin. And Paul's like, no, you ought to be mourning this thing. Mourning like a funeral, you know? Because this guy is spiritually dead if he's walking and practicing this kind of thing. And guess what? Because in chapter 6, he says, don't you know the unrighteous not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals, effeminate, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, and so forth. They want to inherit the kingdom of God. So this guy is not going to inherit God's kingdom. He's in big trouble. You ought to be mourning it. And guess what? They, Paul said, get the leaven out of the church. I've already decided. Oh, you'll leaven the whole lump. The whole church will be affected if you just allow sin. It'll just destroy your church. So they excommunicate the guy. But then the guy repents. He has a change of heart. It's like, what am I doing? Because that spiritual discipline of being cut off from the ecclesia, God's people, and handed over to Satan, he said, I've handed him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of salvation. Well, guess what? He repented. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul's saying, great. But you know what? You need to make sure you receive him now because now you have the legalist there that didn't want to accept the fact that this guy was forgiven. Do you see what horrible thing he did? How can we let him back in the church? But Jesus, did Jesus die for some sin, most sin, or all sins? All sins. So we should rejoice when somebody has overcome a sin, right? We should say, praise God. That's horrible, but praise God. He got right with God. And Paul says to do three things. He says to comfort him. He says to forgive him and to confirm your love to him. But we get to 2 Corinthians where he says to do those things, the next letter, he's concerned that there's still people in that church that haven't repented of their sins. So keep your finger in chapter 7 or just turn a few pages to your right. Verse 21 of chapter 12. 
First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 21. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. And I may mourn over many of those who have what? Sinned in the past and have not what? Repented of the impurity, immorality, sensuality, which they have practiced. See the key word there is practiced. I'm concerned that there's going to be many there that are still living a life of rebellion against the Lord. Serious stuff. Because look what he says in chapter 13, verse 5. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you fail the test. Okay? And the Greek word there is adakamas. That's the word Paul said, I beat my body down first to the Corinthians as well. I beat my body down, so after I preached to others, I myself would not become what? A docomos. He didn't want to become that. And he says, these folks are continuing their rebellion against the Lord. And he says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Christ is in you unless you fail the test, a docomos. Docomos, without the A in front, without the prefix, docomos meant it was used to pass the test, or you test silver or test gold, and uh, you'd refine it and so forth, and it would become pure. A docomos would negate, it would say, no, it's, it, it's failed the test. And here in 2 Corinthians 7, I'll go back to chapter 7. Since Paul, we know, is concerned about them repenting, he wants to see true repentance. He doesn't want them to misunderstand what it means to be truly repentant. And we dare not misunderstand that either. Amen? Paul said his goal in Colossians chapter 1 at the end of that chapter was to present every man perfect before the Lord. Telos, mature. And that's one of my heartbeats for this fellowship is that that's why I preach the way I do. I'm going to stand before the Lord and give an account for you. And he's put a love in my heart for my brothers and sisters that we all know God and that not one goes astray. And we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 where Paul breaks down what it means to truly be repentant. He says in verse 9, and this is under our uh, number 5, right? Remorse of or remorse for sin in our 10 R's, right? As we break down the anatomy of Christian repentance. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of what? Repentance. So sorrow is part, or I should say, that which leads to genuine repentance. Okay? It's part of the anatomy of what repentance, uh, repentance is brought about by godly sorrow. So it says that you're made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Now look at verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God, Paul's gonna tell you, this is a sorrow that's according to God's will, the kind of sorrow God wants you to have over sin. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. Oh man, I'm so bummed out that I had to give that money back I stole. Oh, I'm, I'm so bummed out that I had to break up the relationship I had with that guy or with that gal. Oh, I'm so bummed out. That's not real repentance. Repentance is like, thank you, God, for forgiving me. Thank you for setting me free. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repent, a repentance without regret leading to salvation. So true repentance is from a sorrow that doesn't have regret and true repentance leads to what? Salvation, amen? But the sorrow of the world produces what? Produces death. For the sorrow of the world produces what? Death. There's two types of sorrow here. There's godly sorrow, 
that leads to repentance. There's worldly sorrow that leads to death, spiritual death, because it's opposite of salvation here. And then look at verse 11. For behold, what earnestness, this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. In other words, and I, guess what? I've worked on a whole message on verse 11, breaking down those words, which is a fruit of repentance. That will be part two of this message down the line sometime in the future. I don't want to preach it right in a row because I don't want to stand repentance two weeks in a row because it's good to hit it off and on for me. So interesting. But he's talking about the fruit of repentance in verse 11. So there's a lot more there. Plus, I probably couldn't come up with an R for every one of those words. Tell you the truth as well. But it would have been way too long of a message. But remorse for sin. Having a true remorse for sin. The remorse for sin is not repentance in of itself. The remorse for sin leads to repentance, a change of heart that leads to salvation. You see that? Godly sorrow leads, it doesn't say godly sorrow is repentance. Sometimes people think if they're sorry, that means I'm repentant because I'm sorry this happened. I'm sorry about that. I'm, no, that's not repentance. Godly sorrow leads to what? Repentance. So the godly sorrow is a part of the motivation of I need to change my heart then. A lot of people can have worldly sorrow and we, I've used the illustration before, the kid that gets caught with his hand in the cookie jar, he starts crying. He's upset because he can't have a cookie, not because he's broke mom's heart. Worldly sorrow isn't just, worldly sorrow is just being bummed out because you got caught. Godly sorrow is you're bummed out because you recognize you've sinned against God. And godly sorrow leads to repentance because the repentance is a change of heart, a change of mind. Because you can have some godly sorrow for a while, but not act on it. It goes away. And then all of a sudden you have no change of heart and change of mind and therefore no change of direction, which is the fruit of the change of heart or ch and change of mind. So can you think of examples in scripture of somebody who had worldly sorrow, didn't repent? Ooh, you guys got them all. Saul, yeah. He was bummed out because he lost his kingdom. Somebody else said Esau. Esau sought his birthright back with with tears, but he didn't get it. But he was sorrowful because he lost his birthright, not because he sinned against God. And Judas, it says that he had remorse, but it was a worldly sorrow. He didn't go to the Lord, have mercy on me. We don't see that anywhere. He went to the priest who he had, you know, sinned with, right? Threw the money down, went out and hung himself. He didn't seek the Lord through it. Worldly sorrow leads to death. If you're just sorrowful because you get caught doing things. A lot of criminals in prison right now have sorrow. Some of them have godly sorrow and they're in the chapel worshiping the Lord. But most of them, they're all pretty sorrowful, but the greater amount of them are just bummed out they got caught and they're in prison because they can't hurt more people. They can't steal more things. They can't, you know, do more crimes. It doesn't lead to salvation. We have to be careful. Anybody ever play the game Sorry? Raise your hand if you played that game Sorry. Shame on you. No, I'm just kidding. Only one person on this side? How about on this side? You ever play the game Sorry? No shame. I'm just, you know. What happens? You move your token, and when you land on somebody else's spot, what happens to them? Send them all the way back. And what do you say? Sorry. Are you really sorry? No, you're not really sorry. 
It's just a game. And that's okay if that's just a game. If you're truly sorry, you're like, I can't play this game anymore. You know, I'm sorry. I really am. You know, that's what you'd be like, you know. But guess what? You're not really sorry. You gain ground that belongs to someone else. And you're kind of happy about doing it. Like, yeah. Now, kind of, some of these games feed in our flesh, I think, a little bit, right? I'm not getting legalistic and say you can't play sorry, but maybe you should think about it. I'm just kidding. Uh, but anyway, think about this, though, guys. That's, it can't be a game with the Lord. Hey, man. You can't just be in rebellion to God, sin against God, and just say, sorry, sorry, sorry. And it's just a game for you. Because you keep taking, you keep going, you keep going, going forward that way, hurting people, and you just act like it's no big deal. It's a big deal to God. Amen? We have to have sorrow enough to repent. Have godly sorrow to where we're like, man, I'm not going to do that again. But what if I fall, I fall later? Well, the context is, were you truly sincere at the time? God knows your heart. Were you truly grieved when you said, God, I'm sorry. I've offended you. Please help me not to repeat that again. That's repentance, you know. That's a sorrowful heart that leads to repentance. And that's very, very important. So let's not play games with God. You don't want to play games with God. He's serious, amen. We want to be truly sorry. In fact, go to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Verse 4. Now, by the way, the context of James, a lot of the context, since you're in James 4, turn the page as well. James 5, you're going to look at 4 and 5. The context of James, the book of James is found in the last couple verses. My brethren, if any of among you strays or turns from the truth and one converts him back, he'll save him the soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. I think that's more King James, so let me read it from the NSB. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns the sinner, a sinner from the error of his way, will save his soul from death and hide or will cover a multitude of sins. The NIV, if you have the NIV, it says save him from death, but it doesn't translate the Greek word there. Suke. That's the Greek word, which is used earlier in chapter 1, I think around verse 21. Receive the engrafted word which is able to save your suke, your soul. Now here, if you get away from the word, you turn from his word and you go astray. Brethren, if any of you turn from the truth and one brings him back, turns him back, he'll save a suke, a soul from death, and hide a multitude of sins. He's talking about recovering backsliders. He ends with that. And he's doing just that in the book of James to a degree. In fact, look at James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility or enmity toward God? King James, enmity. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself what? An enemy of God. So if I like lose my first love and I go back and fall back in love with the world, that's a serious deal. Because guess what? When you leave your spouse for somebody else, you commit adultery. And you lose your love for your spouse, you go love someone else. That's adultery. That's so serious in the eyes of God. But just think how serious it is when you commit adultery on the Lord. You, lose, you leave your first love. It says you become an enemy of God. Whew. That's serious. Thus saith the scripture. And I don't go to these scriptures and try to explain them away. I preach right off the page, man. That's what it's saying here. And the non-believers don't commit adultery against the Lord because they're never what? Married to the Lord. Then look what he says. Or do you think that the scriptures speak to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit 
which he has made to dwell in you? Now, there's a lot of constructions because Greek scholars disagree as to how this should be translated. We just dealt with this recently when Brother Nico, at the end of the service, I said, anybody have questions? And he mentioned, he said, hey, uh, is he addressing Christians here in James chapter 4? I said, I believe he is because he's speaking of spiritual adultery here. And the idea is those who've turned away, James 5, 9, 20, I didn't mention that, but I mentioned the context here is those who are committing spiritual adultery. But chapter 4, the very next verse, 5, or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires a spirit which he has made to dwell in us. This is a, not a good translation. Why do I say that? They do capitalize the word pneuma in the Greek. Pneuma is the word spirit. Suke soul used James 5. 1920, James 1.21. The word pneuma here in the Greek, they capitalize with an S, believing it refers to the Holy Spirit. And I'm in agreement with them there, okay? I don't believe it's a good translation to say he, he jealously desires the Spirit, meaning your, your Spirit that is within you. We just say he jealously desires you. You wouldn't have to say that. It'd be just awkward. But this is not a great translation either because it says he jealously desires the Spirit capital S, Spirit, the Holy Spirit that is within you, it sounds really strange that the God would jealously desire the Holy Spirit that lives in us. He's part of the triune Godhead, amen? So the better translations, I believe, of this is that, and it, and it, it can easily grammatically be translated this way, and many translations do translate it this way, is that the Holy Spirit that is within you, it, the Holy Spirit jealously desires you, Okay? You know why that fits the context to you really, really well? Look at verse 4. What's going on there? It's talking to those who are committing spiritual adultery. And God's jealous, jealous to have them, amen? And the Holy Spirit that he's put within us, Paul says, grieves when we sin. And the Holy Spirit desires to have all of us. He desires us not to be involved in spiritual adultery. He doesn't want us to leave our first love. And if we do, he wants us back. The Bible says God is a jealous God, amen? Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, that I betrothed you to be engaged, or I betrothed you to one husband, that is to Christ. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. A godly jealousy is a jealousy that has no sin in it, that simply desires what belongs, to, and in this case, it's, it's the most powerful jealousy. It's God wanting relationship with his people, the ones he died for, the ones he gave himself for, that have gone astray, and his Holy Spirit jealously desires to have us, and when we're in spiritual adultery, it's a serious thing before the Lord. So what, what needs to happen? There needs to be genuine repentance. Look at verse six. But he gives a what? Greater grace. By the way, think of God's grace in this, man. Remember God with Israel? Remember he was telling them over and over again? Did, 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 God, did Israel just fall into sin and God said, it's over? Sorry, man. Sorry I ever chose you as people. I'm done with you. No, did he not show faithfulness and grace over and over and over and over again. Just read Judges. Just read through the prophets. Amen. He constantly is. He said, my heart is turned over within me. The Lord, often when he speaks to the prophet, sometimes you don't know if it's him speaking or the prophet because the prophet becomes so one with his word. And he goes, I wish I had more tears that I could cry. I think he's saying like through Jeremiah. Jeremiah's all cried out. God's like, I wish I could use him more to show my heart. He says also, my heart's turned over within me. You know, to the, to the children of Israel, he says, Jesus, God becomes a man. He says, how often I would have gathered against the hen desert chicks, your children as hen desert chicks, but you were unwilling. That's the heart of God, man. And his heart for his people, the church, he's, 
he gives greater grace. He's still, he could have said, I'm done with you. You're committing spiritual adultery. It's over. I mean, how many times has it happened in human relationships? Over, 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 millions of times. The world over. But God continued to be faithful, but he warns them. You commit spiritual adultery, you're an, you become my enemy. You need to make a choice to come back now. That's why in 5, 19, 20, he says, Brethren, if any of you err from the truth or turn from the truth, one brings it back, he'll save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. He wants you to come back. Now, what's amazing about this is he says to them, therefore, verse 6, right after he says, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, because when we're doing our own thing, loving the world more than him, we're proud. But he gives grace to who? Gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Submit in the Greek is a military term, which means to do a 180. It means to just turn around. Okay? Speaking of heart repentance, right? Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. In other words, guess what? That's another military term, by the way, to resist, like resisting an enemy. But guess what? They're resisting God, and they're in the enemy's camp. Now they need to submit to God and do a 180, right? And resist the devil. You're either in your life submitting to God or you're submitting to the devil. And if you're submitting to the devil, you're resisting God. If you're submitting to God, you're resisting the devil. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. That's why that guy that was in fornication, Paul says, I've had him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. There came a point where he said, okay, you want to be in his camp. Boom. Here's your, your protection is gone now. I'm handing you over. I'm having you kicked out of the church. So you don't have the, the church protecting you and you don't feel all saved and, oh, I'm with, right with God and everything's great. No, now you're on Satan's power and now hopefully you'll wake up and be disciplined because God disciplines the, his children, amen? He disciplines those he loved and he wanted him back. Now, he says in verse eight, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Remember that analogy I gave of the woman that's on the other side of the truck saying, we used to be close and cuddle when we drove. Well, Draw close to him. He'll draw close to you, the Lord, in this case. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And by the way, again, we're the ones that commit spiritual adultery against the Lord, not the world. We're the ones that have the Holy Spirit in us whose jealousy desires us. The world doesn't have the Holy Spirit. That's why I'm saying this passage is warning believers to come back to the Lord. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Don't be a double-minded Christian. Verse 9, be miserable. Look at it. We're talking about true remorse here, right? I'm spending some time on number five because I don't believe there's enough tears in the church. I don't believe we get heartbroken over our sin the way we ought to. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. That's the saith the Lord, amen. We need to take our sins seriously that we're sinning against God who loves us so much he made us, who loves us so much he gave himself on our behalf. Verse nine, I'm gonna read again. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. I remember they had the so-called laughing revival so many years ago. We did a three-tape expose on that because it was called the revival. And what you'd all go do, you'd go to this big meeting and then people would laugh like hyenas and they'd crawl around doing weird things and just jumping around. You know, some people would even be on a leash like they're an animal. and Like, that's not revival, man. When we, when we come to the Lord and we repent, we're not laughing like, you know. That, now, true joy is a fruit of repentance in the end, amen. 
not act like a maniacal, foolish type of person, okay? Verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will what? He will exalt you. So true repentance, man, there needs to be a humility that says, I've offended you, Lord. I've, I've broken your heart. I've sinned against you. In Ezekiel chapter 9, this is pretty crazy. It's just pretty scary, man, because they were ready to go into Babylonian act- captivity. They, they committed adultery on him as people again spiritually. And some were refusing to return, many of them, most of them. And the Lord called forth like six, six grim reapers. And we see, read this. Then he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice saying, draw near to Ezekiel. In chapter 9, verse 1, O oh, executioners of the city, each with his own destroying weapon in his hand. Behold, six men came to the direction, at the direction of the upper gate, which faces the north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand. And among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a writing case in, as, as, at his loins. So there's six of these guys to go wipe people out, man. And one, another one comes, a seventh one, completion now with a writing kit, a scribe, to, to be able to write. Clothed, with, clothed in linen with a writing case in his loins. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. So at the temple, by the bronze altar. Then the glory of God, now this is interesting. The glory of God went up from the cherubim on which he had been to the threshold of the temple. That's a picture of the Lord in the Holy of Holies leaving the Holy of Holies, going to the threshold of the temple. Just a sign that, guess what? I'm forsaking this city, okay? Now, he had promises that he'll still keep, and he's going to send his Messiah. He's going to give them a new covenant and everything else, amen? So he doesn't ultimately forsake them, but the, as far as the protection of the city, guess what he says? He goes on to say, he goes, and he called to the man clothed in linen, and whose loins was the writing case. The Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark. Guys, remember what that was in in the Hebrew? A tav, amen. And by the way, the tav in the ancient cursive script. You can go online. I've seen it a number of times. You could just type in ancient, you know, tav, T-A-V or T-A-U, spelled, pronounced tav or ta, either way. And you'll see a cross. And put a cross or a tav, that's the last letter, by the way, of the Hebrew alphabet, and put it on their foreheads. Put it on the foreheads of the men, listen, on the men who, what men? On the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations. Those who were repentant. Those who weren't active in those things and had stayed away from them. Those who turned from those things and they were sighing and they were groaning over these abominations that were being committed by the people. Because they weren't loving the world around them, the evils of the world. They were remaining separate, or they had separated themselves from those things. Who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. That's powerful. That's powerful. Verse 5 says, But to the others, he said in my hearing, Go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. He goes on to say, Strike everybody in verse 6. Just strike everybody except those that have the tov. In the end of verse 6, he says, do not touch any man on whom is the tov 
or the mark. And you shall start from my sanctuary. Wow. You shall start from where? My sanctuary. The church needs to repent too, guys. The elders, the Levitical priests in the Old Testament, they need to repent. Judgment started there because they ought to have known. That's heavy. Start at my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were before the temple. Woo! Started with the elders before the temple. And he said to them, defile the temple and fill its course with the slain. Go out. Thus they went out and struck down the people in the city. Wow. That's heavy, man. It reminds you of the death angel. Remember the death angel? In Exodus, would go over the house, and unless they had a what? A cross, the blood put on the lintel, on the doorpost, from the basin, same place as Jesus' blood was on the cross, and then it would pass over those houses. Now they'd see the Tav in the ancient script was written like an X or a cross, and they saw it on someone's head, where the, the spiritual scribe put it on everybody that sighed and moaned, that was truly repentant, not just going through the motions. Many people were just going through the motions. That's what's happening in the church today. And just as the judgment started at the sanctuary in the Old Testament, the judgment begins at the house of God in the New Testament. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 15 through 19. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But anyone, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name, in this name. For it is, now listen to this, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. That's heavy. For it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty, and if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And Peter's do a lot with trials. And a lot of times we go through trials. Our country and, a lot of, and the nations around the world just went and dealt with COVID, right? And dealt with some strong restrictions put on by different leaders. Sometimes maybe too strong. Sometimes in some places maybe not strong enough. But guess what? When you're going through trials, you have decisions to make. That's nothing compared to what the church is going to go through, guys. That's nothing. And if it says if you can't run with the foot soldiers, what are you going to do in the thickets of the Jordan when the, when the chariots come, the, hor the horsemen come? I mean, we have to endure our trials and make right choices and not choose evil and say, well, God will understand. No, commit our souls to him. Judgment starts at the house of God. Is there a tav over you? Our tav is the blood of Jesus, amen? He died for us. Are you trusting him? Are you seeking him? Number six, and I've got to go through these last few really quick. You need to have a, we need to have a resentment of sin. Resentment of sin, a hatred of sin. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. That's Proverbs 8.13. Psalm 97.10 says, Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. So when we're repentant, we recognize how sin is evil. We hate it. We don't want to do it again. We say, no, it's wrong. I hate it because it broke my God's heart. It's destructive to others and myself. Amen? Romans 12, 9 says, don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. We need to have a resentment for sin. Number seven, we need to remove ourselves from sin. We need to remove ourselves 
from sin. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 16 says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. So godly sorrow leads to repentance and that repentance leads to a change of life. Amen. So we have that change of heart toward God. I want to follow you now. Then the fruit of that will be we get rid of the evil deeds that we're practicing. Amen. We turn to the Lord. We bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Amen. Jesus said to the people of Nineveh in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up. Listen to what he said to them. Now you're hearing, you know what happened to Nineveh, right? They were destroyed, but not when they repented. It was later on that God dealt with them because there was early on there was repentance. Jesus said the men of Nineveh, Matthew 12, 41, will stand up at the judgment with this generation and will condemn it. For they repented at their preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah, someone greater than Jonah is here, Jesus. And his own people weren't repenting. And how do they repent? Jonah chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. What did that look like? What was the fruit of that? But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which, it, uh, which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. And that's exactly what happened. They repented. They turned from the evil deeds. That's the fruit of their repentance. You know? There was a Peanuts cartoon, you know. I, you remember Lucy? Was Lucy a, the sweet character? No, she was the cantankerous, evil character, you know, right? And, and it was an interesting story with, with her because uh, the Peanuts cartoon, sometimes it had some very uh, interesting uh, Christian-type themes in it. And, of course, you know, she was always mean to Charlie Brown, right? And she would, Charlie Brown was practicing football, and he's used their place kicking, and she'd hold the ball, and he'd run with all his might because he wants to do good at practice. And she'd move the ball right away. He'd kick with all his might. He'd fall on his back, you know. And then he, she did it over and over again. Charlie just didn't get it. Finally, he wasn't talking to her. Stopped. And for several panels in the cartoon, he just doesn't want to do anything. He's like, she's like, please kick it one more time. Just kick it again, Charlie. She goes, no, you're just going to remove the ball from me. She, finally, she's pleading. He won't do it. Then she starts crying. She says, I'm so sorry, Charlie. You know, I'm so sorry. Please. I won't do it this time. Charlie goes, okay, you know. And then guess what? She holds the ball. Charlie runs, kick it. She pulls it, falls on his back. And then Lucy says to Charlie, recognizing your faults, Charlie, and actually changing your ways are two different things, Charlie Brown. And guess what? Was Lucy repentant? No, because if she was repentant, she would have changed her behavior. That would be the fruit of it, Amen. If you continue to say, well, you know what? I fell into being a drunk and I got drunk one night. I went to a wedding and I I justified it and said, well, Jesus turned water into wine and then you get hammered. And people are like, dude, you were drunk. You can't use that excuse. Jesus tells us in his word, drunkards won't inherit God's kingdom. Well, yeah, I'm sorry. I made a fool of myself. I can't believe I was thinking I could just handle that. I should have just, but guess what? And your friend called you and said, are they good with you, man? Because you were just... And then guess what? A few days later, you answer, yeah, I'm so sorry I did that. And you're getting drunk. Yeah, I hate my sin. Yeah, I'm wrong. And you just keep doing it. You don't hate your sin enough. You don't love your God enough because you're going to stop being a drunkard if you repent. Amen? You're not going to get drunk over and over again. You're going to turn from it. Amen? So, is this hitting home for anyone? So, removal from sin. Okay? Number eight, repeat. Repeat. And what I simply mean, and I'm just going to finish up here with these real quick, is 
Remember, Paul, J- J- Jesus says to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, remember from whence thou art fallen, repent, and then what? Do your first works. Do the things you were doing initially when you were in love with the Lord. That's repeat. Go back to do what you did when you were walking with Jesus, brothers and sisters. Amen? Nine, repair relationships. Repair relationships. Remember in Zacchaeus in chapter, Luke chapter 19, verse 8? Remember when he repented? He's this little guy up in the tree, and he went, Jesus, you read over my house. Or no, Jesus said to him, Zacchaeus, I'm eating at your house tonight. Zacchaeus was repentant. And he said, whoever I stole something from, I'm going to restore them fourfold. That was based on Exodus 22.1, the Old Testament. You stole someone's sheep, you give them back four sheep. He was saying, hey, there's going to be fruit in my repentance. I'm serious. Amen. And he's going to, re- he's going to truly be repentant. And he's going to, number nine, repair relationships. You seek to repair relationships that you burned because of your sin. You don't just say, oh, good, I'm forgiven. You're actually sad that you hurt people and you want to do something about it. Amen? Ten, you rejoice in your salvation. Last but not least, rejoice in your salvation. Remember when David repented of his sin? I've sinned against you and you alone, Lord. What what does it say in that same psalm? He said, Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Amen? Amen? And the Bible says, happy is the one whose sins are not committed to them. The Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. So there's all these scriptures, there's many more like that, that we are to rejoice in our salvation. Rejoice, and again I say rejoice. So praise God when you sin leads you into misery and depression and sadness. And it's a fake happiness that that goes nowhere in the end. Or a surface happiness that leads to outer darkness and weeping gnashing of teeth. But when you're in sin and you repent and you have godly sorrow, you turn back to your, your Lord away from sin and guess what happens? Then you have the joy of the Holy Spirit, amen? And your life is made complete because the Lord lives in you and through you and makes you what he always intended you to be. Let's live repentant lives as Christians, amen? Praise God, may we all please stand.